This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Is there really a revolution of 2020? Some say that the events of the first half of 2020 may be the opening scenes of a revolution. They argue that these events are similar to those that started the French Revolution of 1789 through 1799, or the Russian Communist Revolution of 1917. Yet there are many who want to believe that it will just blow over. Mr. John Horvath II analyzes the nature of these events in his article, Beware, the Left is Remaking the World Again. This article was first published on LifeSite News on July 28, 2020. The seditious uprisings in response to George Floyd's death have shaken the nation. New York Times op-ed writer Amna Akbar calls them, quote, far different from anything that has come before, unquote. As proof of this new wave, she points to the size of the protests and their duration. Clearly, the media's favorable spin on the riots is unprecedented. All the pieces have come together to foment this dramatic upheaval. The left has managed to unite diverse causes like Black Lives Matter, the Defund the Police movement, the Cancel Rent effort, and the Green New Deal. The panic around the coronavirus is a perfect backdrop of instability to institute drastic change. The left has also created a mood of agitation that tries to project the idea that it is on the cusp of creating a radical new society that will finally overthrow the power structures that cause oppression. Despite all these factors coming together, the left offers nothing new. The goal is always the same, to overthrow what remains of Christian civilization in society. The characters have changed. The new proletariat is no longer oppressed workers, but the oppressed identities that have worked their way into a quote-unquote cancel culture. The process of this struggle is far more advanced than in prior phases. The target is not only political power, but also the destruction of every social and moral institution that undergirds order. If the 1960s were alarming, the present crisis threatens to be catastrophic. This is not reform. It is a revolution. Worse yet, this is a dangerous time in which the left hopes to make a transition. The left wants to remake the world again. It wants to turn the world upside down and inside out. During these times of revolutionary change, the left seeks to destabilize everything. Those who desire a return to order should consider three characteristics of the left's revolution in transition. The first is that this revolution needs to present itself as a single revolution uniting a variety of causes. In its rush to bring about change, the left no longer hides behind single issues that appeal to different sectors. This new revolution unites all liberal causes into one and makes them almost interchangeable. Thus, Black Lives Matter embraces the LGBTQ plus agenda, whose militants endorse the Green New Deal. Every social movement comes together to demand the defunding of the police. The left sympathizes and never condemns Antifa's violent tactics as it terrorizes and quote-unquote Portlandizes America. All groups join feminists and rally in support of abortion. These movements are cross-pollinating each other and expanding their grassroots spaces. 
racial, climate, and economic quote-unquote justice groups are finding common cause. Quote, Leftist movements today see our crisis as intersectional, writes Akbar. Police violence, global warming, and unaffordable housing are not disconnected, discrete problems. Instead, they emerge from colonialism and capitalism, unquote. Those who defend order must recognize the oneness of the revolution and expose the left for what it is— a single movement that desires the overthrow of what remains of Christian civilization. Knowing the revolution is one makes it easier to oppose. This fight is no longer about the individual issues of civil rights, the environment, or racism. This revolution wants to remake society. All of it. The left admits this goal and its confession signals the end of single-issue politics for both left and right. It is now worldview versus worldview. The second characteristic of this new revolution is that the left is making its radical goals very clear. Activists are not interested in hiding their real agenda to avoid reactions. They had no shame in proposing a Chaz Chop community as an idealization of their utopian dreams. They make no apologies for turning Portland into a battlefield for violent revolution. The BLM slash Antifa activists are not interested in reform. Theirs is a revolution that challenges all premises. It presupposes a total change of all society in the hellish image of a world without God and order. The defund the police movement, for example, makes it very clear that it desires the abolition of police. Any defunding is merely a rapid intermediary phase to the final goal. Indeed, city councils like that of Minneapolis are already taking steps to dismantle the police and introduce a radical new program of community organizing. Will their novelty be akin to the old Soviets? Activists seek to deprive the state of its coercive power, which protects society against disorder and anarchy. However, a state without police powers cannot endure. Black Lives Matter openly proclaims goals on its website that include the promotion of LGBTQ quote-unquote equality, socialist measures, and non-Western family structures. The cancel rent effort does not desire the temporary relief of poor tenants, but the abolition of private property and the establishment of free housing as a human right. This is urban reform, an evergreen communist demand. All these programs are radically contrary to the social structures underlining a Christian civilization. Those defending order need to expose the revolutionaries' radical goals. Most Americans do not want these goals since they are so contrary to America and its heritage. A third characteristic of this revolution in times of transition is that the left is radicalizing. To maintain the dynamism of its forward motion, it must be constantly moving ever more leftward. It must exhibit ever more vitriol toward anything resembling Christian civilization. Even the most insignificant things, 
bathrooms, football, and pronouns must be weaponized and used against the liberal establishment. Its attacks take on an almost ritualistic tone full of symbolism and theatrics. The left is radicalizing and demands that its supporters fall in step behind the new revolution. For this reason, many moderate leftists are being purged from the ranks. Liberal educators without sufficient zeal for the cause can find themselves, quote-unquote, canceled by the culture. The New York Times centrist editor Barry Weiss resigned because she found herself the target of zealot staffers who wanted her out. Jeff Bezos, who supports every liberal cause, found protesters outside his housing complex with a guillotine, literally, to protest his excessive wealth. Indeed, radical leftists are attacking the liberal establishment and calling for its downfall. The underzealous liberals respond with the most unbelievable concessions in hopes of saving their situation. The revolution devours its own. However, the white-hot rage against all things Christian presents a real threat to society as it tears down every statue, law enforcement institution, and historical narrative that stands in its way. The revolution in times of transition represents dangers, opportunities, and weaknesses. It is dangerous because of its explosive nature that threatens to destabilize society. As the revolution opens up its flanks wide to reveal its true yet horrific face that it usually masks, opportunities are created for those who know how to denounce it. Such exposure can thus spark significant and victorious reactions. Another risk the revolution runs when radicalizing comes from its speed, doing too much too fast. It leaves behind enormous swaths of the public. The radical attack on all things Christian can also serve to trigger lukewarm Christians to reassess their life priorities. With the help of God's grace, they can return to the Father's house, join the counter-revolution, organize actions of surprising efficacy, and participate in the triumph of Mary's Immaculate Heart. The education system has undergone its own slow revolution. This process has played out over the last century. Edwin Benson analyzes its most recent aspects in Marxism, class struggle, and real American history. It is a new day for Chicago school students. The Chicago Sun-Times relates the coming of this new dawn on June 5, 2020. Quote, Chicago students started learning America's real history. Not the whitewashed history, the disjointed one that jumps from European settlers finding America to a sanitized version of slavery, to the civil rights movement, and finally to a seemingly racism-free present time. This is the one with white people having picnics to celebrate lynchings. The history of powerful black resistance music and art. The one with dismembered body parts displayed in storefronts and black perseverance and success through oppression. Black America's history. America's real history. Unquote. What triggered this brave new world dawning, according to the Sun-Times, was the 1619 Project, 
published by the New York Times on August 18, 2019. The 1619 Project serves as source material for much of this quote-unquote real history. The lengthy Sun-Times article describes a variety of students' reactions to learning this real history. While the students represent a spectrum of racial and ethnic groups, they all reach the same conclusion. If you want to make students hate America, the 1619 Project is an amazingly effective way to do it. The problem with the project is that it is not really history, much less quote-unquote real history. Historians on the left, the right, and in the center have registered criticisms of 1619. It is so attached to its narrative that African slavery is the critical determinant in American history that it overemphasizes some facts, distorts others, and leaves important events and personalities out of the story altogether. The story of this great nation must be bent to fit the concept of quote-unquote systemic racism. Now a Chicago politician, State Representative LaShawn K. Ford, wants to export this historical distortion to the rest of the state. Until that goal is accomplished, the teaching of history in the land of Lincoln should cease. No child should be left behind in this effort to make leftist activists out of the next generation of Illinois children. WGN News carried his motivations, quote, we're concerned that the current school history teachings lead to white privilege and a racist society, unquote. A press release from Mr. Ford's office adds more detail. Quote, when it comes to teaching history in Illinois, we need to end the miseducation of Illinoisians. I am calling on the Illinois State Board of Education and local school districts to take immediate action by removing current history books and curriculum practices that unfairly communicate our history. Until a suitable alternative is developed, we should instead devote greater attention towards civics and ensuring that students understand our democratic processes and how they can be involved. To accomplish this, Representative Ford introduced an amendment to the state school code known as HB 4954. Representative Ford might want to brush up on Illinois law. In 2005, the Illinois General Assembly passed Public Act 094-0285. It amended a more general 1991 act of the legislature that mandated, quote, a unit of instruction studying the events of black history, unquote. That 2005 revision contained the following language, quote, It is therefore desirable to create a commission that as an organized body and on a continuous basis will survey, design, encourage, and promote the implementation of education and awareness programs in Illinois that are concerned with the African slave trade, slavery in America, the vestiges of slavery in this country, and the contributions of African Americans in building our country, to develop workshops, institutes, seminars, and other teacher training activities designed to educate teachers on this subject matter, and that will be responsible for the coordination of events on a regular basis throughout the state that provide appropriate memorialization of the events concerning the enslavement of Africans and their descendants in America and their struggle for freedom, liberty, and equality, unquote.
The commission created by this act was called the Amistad Commission, after a ship taken over by Africans being illegally smuggled into the United States in 1839. They had to be smuggled in because the international slave trade became illegal after 1808. The Amistad Commission published a curriculum. Its introduction is the only part available online. A search for Amistad Curriculum and Amistad Commission on the Illinois State Board of Education's website revealed only one subsequent mention, a summary of the law that created it. Perhaps Representative Ford's time would be better spent investigating the Amistad Commission and the public dollars that they consumed. That investigation should extend to the State Department of Education and the various Illinois public school systems. If the schools ignored the 1991 and 2005 laws, it is long past time to discover the reasons why. Only one news story about the commission pops up in a more general internet search. The story mentions that one of the commission's members was Jeremiah Wright, then Senator Barack Obama's pastor. Some of Dr. Wright's anti-American comments made quite a stir when they were made public during the 2008 presidential campaign. Surely Dr. Wright was not part of a conspiracy to conceal African Americans' role in U.S. history. During the 90s, Representative Ford himself was a history teacher and basketball coach for the Chicago Public Schools. He must, therefore, know that his assertions about hidden African-American history are flatly untrue. Since the early 80s, there has been a concerted attempt to include the history of African-Americans within the context of American history courses. Having participated in that process in the public schools of Miami, Florida, 1984 to 1999, and Maryland, 2001 to 2018, this author taught about the, quote, African slave trade, slavery in America, the vestiges of slavery in this country, and the contributions of African Americans in building our country, unquote. Included in that process were numerous, quote, workshops, institutes, seminars, and other teacher training activities, unquote. Such courses contain much that the 1619 Project omits. The omissions include the strenuous efforts of non-African Americans to end slavery, prevent and ameliorate the segregation that was a sad part of American history, and pass laws that ended segregation. As 1619 points out accurately, African Americans took significant roles in those processes. But the project never admits that these efforts would have failed without many white people's support and assistance. These attempts to write out many African-American supporters serves the purpose of putting American history into a context of a Marxist class struggle narrative. Modern Marxists divide the society into oppressors and the oppressed in a racist world. The liberal narrative of the 1619 Project promotes a history that will not add to students' understanding of the forces that shaped the United States. It distorts the truth by wrenching events from their contexts, emphasizing events that fit their narrative, and erasing those that do not. Far better would it be for students to learn history informed by the love of God and neighbor. 
Such a Catholic reading of history is the easiest, quickest, and surest path to understanding the just and harmonious relationships that can and should exist among humanity's various races and ethnicities. Marxist egalitarianism is as removed from a Christian sense as hell is from heaven, for it is fueled by hate, not by love. Representative Ford is quoted as saying, It costs us as a society in the long run forever when we don't understand our brothers and sisters that we live, work, and play with. Unquote. This statement is true. It is the reason that schools teach history. It is also an excellent reason not to distort that history. One facet of the revolution of 2020 is the possible effect on the economy. John Horvath II considers the likely consequences of the continued government stimulus packages in his article, What Happens When Bailouts No Longer Work? The dynamics of postmodern economics defies the logic of times past. Everyone used to know that there is no such thing as a free lunch and that flawed financial acts always have consequences. Common sense dictates that national economies should function like home economies. People should not spend more than they make or take unreasonable risks. Everyone should always save for a rainy day. However, these simple rules no longer seem to apply, especially in these times of the coronavirus crisis. Economists allow everything. Suddenly, everything is free. Stimulus checks, benefits, paycheck loans, and medical care. The government can spend with reckless abandon. Trillions of dollars of debt are approved without much fanfare. The business world follows suit with its dependence on cheap money and government largesse. All these trends also translate into personal finances. So many people have embraced debt and entitlements as a way of life. When things get rough, people go to the government to rescue them from disaster. Perhaps the worst of it is that there seem to be no consequences. The sky does not fall down. Things seem to keep on functioning as if nothing drastic has happened. People seem to keep living happily ever after until the next crisis strikes. On the surface, postmodern economics seems as bizarre and irrational as the philosophy of postmodernity. However, the constant recourse to government for stimuli, aid, and free money does have consequences. As things worsen with the present multiple crises, the frayed edges of a defective financial system are showing. The rescues still work, but there are signs of trouble. The gradual consequences of a bailout economy are showing in the form of low growth and productivity. It now takes more kick to kickstart the economy. Government rescues depress markets and discourage entrepreneurship. Indeed, massive government interventions of any kind are dangerous and necessarily lead to socialism. Massive government intervention is dangerous because it is habit-forming. Once a government indulges in printing money to deal with disasters and crashes, there is no crisis too big or small that will not serve as a pretext for printing more. Indeed, the print reflex becomes almost automatic, and the amount of money grows exponentially with each new adventure.
These automatic rescues create habits of dependency that are hard to break. These habits, in turn, generate others. Economists become accustomed to a distorted vision of the economy. Business leaders, gorged with cheap money, are tempted with moral hazard, developing insensitivity to risk-taking since they are not expected to pay for bad outcomes. Consumers come to expect the comfort of generous bailouts that soften the impact of financial failures and crashes. People live in the shadow of a cruise ship-like economy where everything seems to work out fine. The resulting unhealthy situation creates a fragile and vulnerable economic system that must constantly be rescued with easy credit, tax benefits, and bailout funds. What makes the rescues dangerous is a vast arsenal of money-extending weapons deployed by the Federal Reserve. The arsenal makes possible the array of extremely generous unemployment benefits, forgivable paycheck loans, and direct cash payments that have cushioned the fall from financial stability. The Federal Reserve is cutting interest rates to almost nothing to get money running through the economy. It is expanding the money supply and incurring new debt. For the first time, the regulatory body is directly buying up corporate bonds to calm markets. It is acquiring these assets at twice the rate of the 2008-era practice of quote-unquote quantitative easing that allowed the Fed to buy up tens of billions of dollars of troubled assets a day for the same purpose. Indeed, the government battle plan has resulted in the strategy that has all but made money free to borrowers with near zero interest rates. What makes matters worse is that other nations are following similar plans. Worldwide, the notion of free money allows governments and businesses to borrow their way out of any problem and to create new ones. Massive rescues and free money have three dangerous effects on America's business culture. The first is that it allows gigantic companies to thrive. Free money helps the big firms get bigger by making it easier to expand. These firms are also best positioned to deal with the strings of countless government regulations tied to free money. They profit from the government's recovery programs that need the services and resources of giant firms. If deemed, quote-unquote, too big to fail, troubled giants can count on even more direct government aid. Rescues also favor inefficient, heavily indebted smaller firms who use free money to stay alive artificially. Economists call them zombie firms since they use up credit resources at the expense of hyper-efficient startups that normally make economies dynamic with their innovation. The zombies make no profits, yet absorb workers, crowd out resources, and drive up costs. This clogging of the economy with deadwood makes it less productive. The inefficient use of free money has the effect of juicing up the market and thus inflating the value of bonds, stocks, and other assets that artificially increase the wealth, on paper, of their owners. The result of a government rescue culture is not the flowering of capitalism, but its opposite. As Rushir Shama writes in his Wall Street Journal Review essay, July 25th to 26th, 2020, 
The irony is that the rising culture of government dependence is, in fact, a form of socialism for the rich and powerful. Unquote. In other words, Western economies may be outwardly capitalist, but now run on socialist models engineered by powerful technocrats that protect gigantic corporations and keep inefficient firms alive. The long-term consequence of this faulty model is the ballooning of global debt. Free money may be free to borrow, but the principal must always be paid back. Borrowing against the future may soften the damages caused by economic crises, but it weakens productivity, slows growth, and clogs up the system with its zombies. Increasing the number of unproductive borrowers means that it takes one more debt to impact ever longer and weaker economic recoveries. The coronavirus crisis race riots, and economic shutdown created a perfect storm that hampers a return to order and normality. Economists realize that it will take successive relief packages measured in trillions of dollars to fix the harm done to the world economic system. Thus, governments are intervening and borrowing on a scale never seen before. This perspective begs the question no one dares to ask. What will happen when the bailouts no longer work? With everything in a state of emergency, everyone feels dispensed from asking that question. However, people do not realize that the arsenal is emptying of weapons, old or new. There will be nothing with which to restart the economic engine. The risk that the West's financial system will come crashing down is alarmingly high. When and if the coronavirus crisis ends, many suggest that there will be time for governments to move out of the rescue mode and return to sound economics. However, this is easier said than done. Such logical advice does not seem to apply to a bizarre postmodern world that has embraced the absurd. The way out of this mess is not found in a policy change. This is no longer a financial or economic problem. It is a moral problem deep in the hearts of postmodern men. In the frenetic intemperance of unbridled passions, people have adopted vices and lifestyles that know no restraint. They resent any sufferings or hardships that come their way. They push off for the distant future all obligations, responsibilities, and duties that should be taken care of now. The present state of the economy reflects these grave moral disorders. Morality and economics are now so intertwined that one cannot be considered without the other. To think otherwise is an illusion. A return to order is possible only when there is a return to moral law and God, for whom all things are possible. This concludes, Is There Really a Revolution of 2020? Thank you so much for listening. To read these or find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. 
your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.